Amen. Turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. Gospel of Matthew chapter 11. Let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Oh, Lord, my rock and my redeemer, as every day, throughout the day, I need you. I may not always acknowledge it or ask you, but Lord, I need you. And I definitely need you now to preach your word, your holy word to your holy people. Your people who've been chosen. Your people who are a royal priesthood. These blessed sons and daughters of yours. Help me not to get in the way. I thank you that your word will accomplish that which you set it out to do pray that each heart is fertile and ready. Not thorny, not stony, not shallow, but fertile. Good soil, good hearts. So speak, Jesus. I'm even asking you, Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit to stand in my body, think with my mind, and speak with my mouth. May we all have ears to hear what you want to say this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 11, beginning at verse 1, the Bible reads, Now it came to pass, when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples, that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison, about the works of Christ. He sent two of his disciples and said to him, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John the things which you hear and see, the blind see and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses, but what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to receive it, 
He is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. For the next 32 minutes, let me speak on the subject of dealing with doubt and disappointment. Dealing with doubt and disappointment. But if I were to remix the title, it would be, what do you do? When God doesn't do what you want him to do. Now, I'm going to keep it real. I pray you keep it real with me today. But what do you do when God doesn't do what you want him to do? Has God ever disappointed you? Has God ever let you down? You know he does not fail, but have you ever felt like, just maybe, just once, he failed in your situation? Have you been so doubtful that your doubt has turned into disappointment, and then your disappointment begins to fester and remain with you in such a way where you're tempted to give up on the faith? You're tempted to give up on God because what you're going through doesn't feel loving, but you know God is love. What you're going through doesn't feel good, even though you've been taught that God is good. And what you're feeling and what you believe to be true just aren't matching up, and you are disappointed with God. He hasn't answered that prayer yet. He, has, he hasn't saved that loved one yet. He hasn't healed that person yet. You're disappointed with the way that your life is going. And as you come into the holiday season, everybody's going to be sitting around talking and having a good time. For some of us, the holidays trigger emotional responses that are not always good. Because this may be our first Thanksgiving without our spouse. Because we may have lost him or her through death or through divorce or separation. And so we're not too excited about the holidays. We're disappointed with God. He didn't fix it. He didn't change it. Some of us are dealing with the death of a loved one this Thanksgiving and Christmas season. And this is new territory, new, new land. And it's like, God, I just don't know how I feel about you right now. Now, you may say, now, pastor, I'm spiritual. I don't doubt God. I, God does not disappoint me. Okay. <laughs> Keep living. Because there'll be some days where you will feel like God is more of an enemy to you than a friend. Now, you may not want to testify, but since I got the mic, I'll testify. God has disappointed me before. He's never failed me. He's definitely stretched me, and there have been some times he, he hasn't done what I wanted him to do. And in those moments when he doesn't do what I want him to do, he reminds me that he is God and I am not. And I have a choice to make. Will I trust him or will I? Because really there is no other choice for a believer where else can I go? What else can I do? But see, if I start doubting, 
I'll start pouting. And if I start pouting, I'll be looking for a way out. But God wants to use that storm, that test, not to crush me, but to grow me. Where I trust him, as our worship leader said, when I don't understand his mind, I trust his heart. When I don't see his hand, I know that he's working. And theology only means something when it's put to the test. And it's not put into the test in a classroom taking a written test. Theology about God is put to test in the streets, in life. Because a belief is something that you hold, but a conviction is something that holds you. And God wants to see us grow. And, and if you think that I am on thin ice by saying I've been disappointed with God, I need to let you know I'm not alone on this thin ice. Many people in the Bible have been disappointed with God. And the one we're going to look at today was very disappointed with God to the point where he thought about looking for another Savior. So let's keep it real as we keep it righteous. We're going to keep it real. John the Baptist was disappointed with Jesus. Matthew chapter 11, verse 2 says, when John had heard in prison, John was in prison. We'll talk about that in a moment for doing the right thing. He heard about the works of Christ, and he sent two of his disciples and said to him, are you the coming one, or do we look for somebody else? Strong Tower, that's disappointment. That's doubt. That's discouragement. That's a man who's ready to quit. But when you think about the man who made the statement, and what a ghastly statement that is, are you really who you say you are? Or should we look for somebody else? Are you really the Savior? Are you really God? Are you really King? Or do I need to try somebody else? This man is discouraged. So if he got there, it's okay for you to say, I've been there. But as we're going to see today, you may get there in doubt and discouragement, but you can't stay there. Okay? We get there, but it's dangerous if we stay there. John was struggling. There's nothing like a good prison cell to show you where you really stand in your relationship with God. There's nothing like getting locked up, not for doing the wrong thing, but for doing the right thing, preaching against Herod for sleeping with and marrying his brother's wife. My man called it out. And because he got called out, he got arrested and put in jail, doing the right thing. And here's a man who has lived his life in the great outdoors, in the desert. And now he is confined to a jail cell. He's off kilter. He's off balance. He, he's not used to this. But as we're going to see, there's more to this question than what jumps out on first reading. This man says, Jesus, are you the coming one? Are you the Messiah? Or do I need to look for somebody else? And when we consider that this man, John, can, can I give you a little bit of his resume? He was born miraculously. His mother and father were old. Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were asking for a child. Uh, 
Elizabeth was barren, and in that culture, a lot of your worth, and this is not a good thing about that culture, but a lot of your worth for a family, a woman, was to have a child, especially a son, to perpetuate the name of the family. So they're old. They've been praying for a son. God hears their prayers, and he tells Zechariah, you're going to have a son. And so this elderly couple conceive, and the angel says, y'all aren't going to name him. I'm going to name him. His name is going to be John. And not only is he a miracle baby, but he's a baby with a calling on his life because he was filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb. Filled with the Spirit in the womb. And he is to be the forerunner of the Messiah who is to come. He is the front man for Jesus. He's the one who will go and prepare the way of the Lord. And he will fulfill scripture as a prophet. He will be a prophet, but he will fulfill what Isaiah wrote, that God will send his messenger before the Messiah was to come. This was John the Baptist. So when he came out of the womb, there was a vow placed on his life that he was not to drink alcohol. John grew up and began to live in the desert, eating locusts and wild honey. And so he had what some would call a Nazarite vow or this vow of purity and cleansing. So he watched what he ate. He abstained from alcohol. He did not have a wife. And the Bible even says he came in the spirit of Elijah and so, therefore, he even tried to dress like Elijah with that uh, 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 coat of camel's hair. Man, it had to be hot in the desert with a camel hair coat on your back. And if he didn't cut his hair, you know, man, that brother looked different. He sounded different because he preached a message of repentance. Get ready because the Messiah is coming. He didn't care who came to his baptisms, whether you were with the Pharisees, you were soldiers, or you were common people, John preached repentance. He wasn't afraid of people. Even to the point where people looked at him and said, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? And he would say, no, I'm not the Christ because the one who's coming behind me is really before me, and I'm not even worthy to carry his sandals I'm baptizing you with water, but he is coming. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. I must decrease because he's got to increase. Who warns you, you brood of vipers, to come out and listen to the word? If you truly have repented, produce fruit and works in keeping with repentance. And the Bible says he didn't even know who the Messiah was. But he kept preaching the Messiah until God revealed it to him. Where God said, there he is. So while John is baptizing, again, he's being faithful. He doesn't know who the Messiah is. The Holy Spirit says, there he is. He looks up and he sees that it's Jesus who happens to be his cousin. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus comes and gets into the water. And he says to John, I want you to baptize me because I want to identify with your message that people need to repent and receive the kingdom. I'm coming under you. You're a prophet of God. John says, no, 
You need to baptize me. Jesus says, no, baptize me to fulfill all righteousness. And when John baptized Jesus, the Holy Spirit came down from heaven and descended upon Christ like a dove. God the Father spoke and said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. John had a front row seat to the baptism of Jesus Christ and the uh, inauguration of his public ministry. So if there was anybody who knew who the Messiah was, it was John the Baptist. But how did John go from that to this? By saying, are you the coming one? He, he was dealing with doubt and disappointment. So his question is saying, Jesus, are you really the Messiah? Forget what I've experienced. I'm looking at where I am now. And I just want to know, are you who you say you are? He was disappointed with how Jesus did ministry. You got to hear this. Why is this guy so disappointed? He's disappointed because Jesus isn't doing ministry the way he thought Jesus should do ministry. Jesus wasn't doing what he thought Jesus should do. And when we get disappointed with God, it's because God's not doing what we think he should do. Pastor, what do you mean? The Bible says here in verse 2 that John heard in prison about the works of Christ. So here's this mountain man, this, this desert dweller who's locked up for months. He's frustrated. All he can do is hear what's going on because his disciples bring him word. What he heard about Christ disappointed him. Pastor Chris, what did he hear? I'm glad you asked. Well, just Matthew chapter 9 alone, he heard that Jesus sat down with sinners. He heard that Jesus not only sat down with sinners, but he sat down in their house when they threw a party. And Jesus had a reputation that was opposite of John the Baptist. John the Baptist did not eat he surely didn't eat with sinners, and he did not drink alcohol. And they said that he has a demon, but Jesus came eating and drinking. And they said that uh, here's a glutton and, 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 a, and a drunkard. So Jesus not only kicked it with sinners, Jesus sat down with sinners, which meant he ate with sinners, and what is implied is that he drank with sinners. John heard what he would never do. Jesus, you're not fitting into this frame that I've made of your portfolio picture. You're not fitting into what I think you should be like. But not only that, oh, if I had time, I'm just going to read this to you also in chapter 9, verse 14. It says, then the disciples of John came to Jesus saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? He's disappointed because Jesus don't fast. Please hear what I'm saying today. He's disappointed because God isn't doing what he thinks God should do. You're hanging out with sinners, and you're not fasting, which means you're not spiritual. Notice who comes to Jesus, two of John's disciples, and they're asking him, uh, uh, we fast. Even the Pharisees fast, but your boys don't fast. Matter of fact, when they eat, they eat 
everything. They don't wash their hands. It was an indictment against the spirituality of Jesus Christ. It was an indictment against the commitment and the cleanliness and the commitment of Jesus Christ. Y'all don't fast, but we do. So John is like, what is this? When I confront a sinner, I tell him to repent. You confront sinners and sit down with them. What's up with that? And at the end of chapter 9 of Matthew, Jesus has compassion on sinful people. And John is sitting here saying, something is not computing here. I'm hearing what you're doing out there, and that's not what I think God, the Messiah, the Christ, should be doing. Because in John's mind, when he's preaching, he's like, the one who's coming is going to baptize with the Holy Ghost and fire. He's got this winnowing fan, and he's going to sweep out the barn and burn up the chaff. He's got an axe that's laid at the root of the tree. He's about to cut it down. And what he's hearing about Jesus, he ain't hearing no fire. He ain't hearing no axe. He ain't hearing no winnowing fan and burning folk up. Because that's how John was. That's how John was. Do you know that there's room in the body of Christ for different ministries, for different focuses? Because sometimes the people who have this focus right here, they think unless you have their focus and do what they do, you aren't doing anything for God. You got to get on their bandwagon. Rather than having the understanding that God can operate this way and that way. Not to mention that when Jesus came, he opened up Isaiah's scroll and he talked about the day of the Lord. Now, he shut the scroll before he got to the day of vengeance. But he talked about how the Messiah had come and he was going to set the captives free on and on and on. But then he rolled up the scroll right at the part about vengeance, the day of the Lord or judgment because in Jesus' first coming, he did not focus on judgment. He focused on mercy. He came as a lamb first to die. John got that part right. But John, when he was preaching, he had this big picture of the Holy Ghost and fire. And Jesus is saying fire comes later. But if God doesn't do what you want him to do right now, you're ready to give up on God. And so John is like, man, I don't know if you're really the one. He was disappointed not only with how Jesus did ministry, he was disappointed with how Jesus did him. I'm up in this prison for doing the right thing. I'm out here preaching, calling folk out. Government officials, somebody got to say something. I'm a prophet, not a puppet. And I'm in jail. Doesn't feel right doesn't seem right, it's not adding up. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? And then while he's in jail, listen to this, Jesus hadn't even come visit him while he's in there. This is the way some people are when the pastor doesn't visit them. I'll leave that alone. I'm, I'm going to leave that alone. John had people visiting him, but Jesus hadn't come. And by the way, you did say the Spirit of the Lord is upon you uh, to go and set captives free. I'm a captive and I'm your cousin. Where you is, man? 
I'm disappointed with you. Even to the point of turning a me problem into a we problem. He says, are you the coming one in verse 3 or should we look for another? He's having a problem with God. But because he's a leader and has influence, his problem becomes his followers' problem. And that's why we got to watch how we complain, especially about God and the church. Because there'll be people who will follow your complaint simply because you're complaining and they love you. And they will leave church with somebody who's mad and they'll just go with them. Their me problem becomes a we problem. And John should have just said, it's my problem. But he's talking about it with his guys. You know, he ain't preaching repentance. There ain't no fire. I'm disappointed with him. We disappointed with him too. <laughs> then he got the nerve to take a couple of my disciples. There's two of them. When they heard that they went with him, those are two of my good disciples. But anyway, it ain't about me. I got to decrease. You said that again, bro. But he's upset with how he's being done. God. Why am I in this position? We know the rest of the story. He ain't going to get out. And not only does he not get out, he dies in one of the most, man, it's a tragic way to die. Herod's daughter, Herodias, from his wife that he took from his brother, does this sensual dance at a party, and all the old dudes around there start going off. And then Herod's like, I'll give you whatever you want, girl, because you're dancing right. Mama says, take him up on that. Go get John the Baptist and have his head cut off because he's speaking against us getting married. So take out the prophet. She goes and tells Herod, yeah, 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 I want his head and I want it on a platter. Herod is like, wait a minute, that's a request. That, that's heavy. Because people think he's a prophet. I can't kill a prophet. But because of my dinner guest. Uh, okay. So they went and cut John's head off in jail. Put it on a platter and brought it out to the party. Why does God let his choice leaders and prophets go out like that? Because in my mind, a man of God ain't supposed to die like that. The God who could have stopped it didn't. The God who could have changed it didn't. And in your life, you get disappointed with God because God doesn't stop stuff you know he got the power to stop. You're like, why does he do this? Why did he let this happen? He could have changed this. He did. And when he doesn't stop it or change it, you get disappointed with him. Now, getting disappointed with God is natural. Because you are the clay, he is the potter. And the tendency of the clay is to question what the potter is doing. We're, we're human and we're arrogant. We have limited minds, but we think we know more than God. Which is why the prophet had to remind us his ways are higher. His thoughts are higher, but we still have a reason to think with our peanut brain that we know more than God and what's best for us. So we get disappointed with him when we have to wait on him. We get disappointed when people get sick and don't get healed. We get disappointed with him when we get into a bad relationship. We get disappointed with him when our money is funny and our change is strange. We get disappointed with him when we're suffering, especially when we're suffering unjustly. You ever been disappointed? 
Jesus said in a moment now, John, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Because getting offended, excuse me, getting disappointed is one thing. Staying disappointed or mad at God is dangerous. Help me, Holy Ghost. Because if you stay disappointed with God, you're going to pick up an offense with God. And if you pick up an offense with God, that word offense means stumbling stone. You're going to stumble, maybe stumble away from God because you're mad at him. That's dangerous. Because like John said, he's like, if you're not the coming one, we need to look for another. John is stupid in this moment because who else you going to trust? What other Messiah you going to trust in at this point in your life? Who you going to turn to? Who's coming up in jail to save you and minister to you? You're talking foolishness right now because you've been disappointed. And now you're teetering on having this kind of heart where you begin to be offended by God. Be careful with having an offense with God. 90% of offense happens because people have unmet expectations. Whether that's with God or with other folk. Folk get offended with other people because people don't meet their expectations. John had an expectation. Jesus didn't meet it, so he is on the verge of stumbling. Another word for a, a, a Greek word understanding of this term offense is bait. When you dig deeper into antiquity with this word, it speaks of the stick that would hold the box up that was connected to a string that somebody, a hunter, would be in the bushes waiting for an unsuspecting bird or whatever to go into the box to get the bait. The stick is pulled and the animal is trapped. So this offense thing not only means you stumble, but it also means that it's bait, the bait of getting angry with God. When you get angry with God, you are now trapped trapped by your own pride and anger and bitterness and disgust. And Jesus is trying to warn him, don't you stumble, don't you take debate, don't you get offended because I'm not doing what you want me to do. It's real. So John, he had questions. We have questions. God, why are you doing this? Why did you allow this? I'm asking a question. But I'm going to check my attitude because that's really how Jesus came in him as I close with the answer. Verse 4, Jesus said to them, okay, John's disciples, go, go, go tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind see and the lame hear. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The poor have the gospel preached to them. Jesus said, I got to give you the facts. My man is questioning my messiahship. So let me give you the facts to prove that I am the Messiah. I'm taking the time to answer this question because I love John. Yeah, sometimes Jesus didn't answer all the questions, but he answered this question because he loved John. He says, send the brother the facts. Because John, you heard, I'm hanging out with sinners, you heard that we not fasting, you heard that I have compassion, but have you heard that deaf people 
are hearing? Have you heard that blind people are seeing? Have you heard that dead people are coming to life? Because when you have an agenda, when you're hurt, you can only hear one thing. You can only hear what agrees with your hurt and your pain. I just said something right there. You can't be objective because you're hurting. So, John, you're hearing stuff, but have you heard about this stuff too? I'm trying to give you a balance to where you are, my man, because I am anointed to do this stuff. Strong Tower, watch this. When Jesus says, let me show John the validity of my ministry, he didn't say, tell John how many people we got. We got 5,000 people coming to our church. He didn't say, our budget is two and a half. Man, our ministry, look at the building we have. He didn't define his ministry by superficial things like numbers and money and buildings. Jesus said, the proof of my ministry is found in ministering to people. And not just people, but the outcasts of society folk. Oh, man. Uh, this is going to have to be part two. I, I, I ain't going to make it. I, I'm just not. I'm on, I'm on. So Jesus says, look who I'm touching. You heard I'm hanging out with sinners, but what? I'm with people who need me the most. When John heard that, do you think that softened his heart? When John heard that, do you think God used that to kind of give him a little bit more balance in his personality because he's all fire, but he also needs to get some mercy? Because the poor have the gospel preached to them. Oh, let me just work it on down here. Jesus defined ministry by serving societal outcasts. He was anointed for this. For the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He's walking in his anointing. He's setting captives free. He's walking in his anointing. He is uh, 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 declaring uh, liberty to those who are bound. He is opening up blinded eyes. He's walking in his anointing. And I just want to know in an age when everybody talks about the anointing, who wants this anointing? Oh, I want to be anointed to sing. I want to be anointed to preach. I want to be anointed to be an entrepreneur. I want to be anointed to have, be a church plant. I want to be anointed. Who wants to be anointed to hang out with outcasts? Jesus is saying, this is where it's at right here. Because the gospel is not only John 3.16, it's also Luke 4.18. You see, we hear the gospel. We so love the world, gave his only begotten son, believe on him. May you have everlasting life. Thank you for the good news. But it's also Luke 4.18. People in prison, people who are blind, people who are bound. I was just as anointed to do that as the other. Why, pastor? Because the gospel is spiritual and it is social. Let it sit for a minute. Let it marinate. It's spiritual and it's social. It is vertical and it is horizontal. The gospel is how I love God, but it is also how I love man. But some of us grew up in camps where maybe we heard only the vertical message, which made us individualists. 
I got mine. I'm on my way to heaven. Or maybe we only heard the fact that we are to live holy. We just heard part of the message, not all of the message, because the term gospel, which means good news. As I close, I'll close with this. It's from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. So the term gospel didn't originate in the New Testament. It originated in the Old Testament when the prophet said, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. What does that mean? Well, if we go back to the book of Isaiah, we know that there's tension between the nations of Babylon and Assyria. Excuse me, Persia. Persia. Babylon at this time, they are oppressing Judah, the people of God. They have taken them into captivity where Jeremiah prophesied, you're going to be there for 70 years. But at this point, they're about to relinquish their authority to the Persians because it was also prophesied the Persians would dominate the Babylonians. Now, in those days when the countries would fight, there would be runners around the rim of the battle. And they would watch the battle because they were the journalists or the reporters of the day. So they would get the news and then run to the village to tell the people who's up, who's down, who's winning, who's losing. And so when Persia defeated Babylon, finally knocked them out, the runners would see what happened. Run over mountains and hills hills with those feet running because they got a message of good news. And the good news was that Babylon has been defeated, which means that Judah has been liberated. That's good news if you've been in captivity for 70 years. So this good news thing started with a social, socio-political understanding. Because if I'm one of the slaves and I am told that I'm going to be set free on January 1st, 1864, I'm watching through the night on December 31st, 1863, because I'm excited from the message that I heard that I'm about to be liberated. So good news you are set free from the tyranny of Babylon. And when the Israelites came under Persia, Darius and Cyrus allowed the Jews to go back home to their homeland. So when they heard this news, they were able to say, our God reigns. We've been saved. So the New Testament writers took that same concept to talk about being saved, not only from political tyranny, but above all from spiritual tyranny. Because the gospel has spiritual ramifications, we are set free from sin, death, and Satan based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's good news. In a couple of weeks when we talk about Christmas and when those angels showed up, they said, man, we got good news, good tidings. Uh, there's peace with men. There's peace on earth. Why? Because Jesus came. But the gospel also has social ramifications because we are set free from oppressive systems. So when Jesus is reaching outcasts, and he's telling them now, go show yourself to the priest. He's breaking down these systems of segregation and discrimination against those people. 
because God loves those people. God has a plan for those people. God heals those people. God empowers those people. God includes those people. Raymond Chang said, preaching to the privileged alone often leads to applying the gospel to individual issues. But preaching to the marginalized often leads to applying the gospel to systemic issues. So the gospel deals with individuals and it deals with systems. Even-handed approach, not one over the other, because there are some who will go strictly social, but they don't want to include the spiritual. They don't want to include the truth. They don't want to include the fact that Jesus is the Savior. So there has to be this even-handed, balanced approach. Jesus judges nations by how they treat or mistreat the marginalized. And as I'm praying, Lord, what do you have for strong tower? So far, God is not saying to me, I'm going to give you this grand vision. Y'all are going to do a recording, and y'all are going to do this, and you're going to build that. That may come. But right now, all he's saying is, I need you to hang out with and love on people who feel last in society. Because the greatness of a church is determined by how it hangs out with the least in society. That's a great church. So God is saying, we're going we to stick with the basics. I need you to love people. Because Jesus judged nations by how they treated or mistreated the marginalized. Jesus said, when I was hungry, y'all didn't feed me. You cut programs that fed the poor. When I was thirsty, you didn't give me water. You poisoned my water in Flint, Michigan. Jesus is saying to us, he's saying, when I was sick, you didn't come visit me in prison. Instead, you cut programs that dealt with pre-existing conditions. Jesus said, when I was a stranger, you didn't let me in. You built a wall instead. Jesus said, when I was in prison, you didn't come visit me. You just made money off of me. And he says, when I was naked, you're sitting around telling me I need to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I don't even have no boots on. John not only needed to hear that, I need to hear this. Start basing success on what I determine is success and not the stuff other folks say is success as a Christian or in the ministry or the church. But come back next week because John is going to be all right. At least we hope so. But if you're disappointed with him, don't allow that disappointment to turn into an offense where you want to stumble away, give up on him, and become trapped by bitterness. You're mad at God. You're mad at the one who gives you the breath to be mad at him. Adjust yourself. Repent. Get right. Let's stand. Can't belabor it as 1209, and I apologize. But if you've been disappointed with God, you've had an attitude with Him, can you humble yourself and just come on and meet me here at the altar? Come, come, let me pray with you. Okay? Let it go. 
Come on, you've been upset, disappointed with God. You feel like he's let you down. You start to get angry with him. Come on, come on up here, y'all. Come on, come on. Everybody's praying. They're not looking at you. You got to let it go. Come on, come on, let's pray. I've been there. I've said, God, why did you let these people hurt me? Why did you let them say that about me? Why didn't you do this in my daughter's life, my son's life? I get disappointed with him. But then Jesus gently reminds me, blessed are those who are not offended because of me. Chris, I'm God. You are not. Trust me. I didn't ask for your permission. I'm God. Trust me. Sometimes I'll deliver you from it. Sometimes I'll deliver you through it. But I'm a deliverer. Trust me. A hard heart, a bitter spirit is going to lock you up. John, you think you're in a prison now. Father, forgive us when our pain leads us to resentment where we begin to question you and wonder if you are really who you say you are. Like John, we know better. We know better. But we get in our feelings more than in our faith. And we get tired. And we're so glad you remember our frame that we're dust. And we talk back. We think we know more than you. We think we know better than you. But you're so patient with us. Forgive us. Forgive us. And remind us, Lord, you're working even when we don't see it. This is going to work together for good because we love you. We're called according to your purpose. You may not come how I want, when I want, or the way I want, but you're coming. Would you give new strength to your sons and daughters? Would you allow them, Lord God, to shake off this disappointment, this discouragement, and get a fresh anointing, a fresh filling of your spirit? to know that you care because Lord the text goes on you you begin to compliment John and Lord you are complimenting all these folks who are suffering you see them even when they don't think you see them and you're excited about them even when they feel so discouraged have your way bless them help them in Jesus name amen let's receive the benediction now unto him who's able to keep us from falling. Please, Lord, to present us faultless before his throne with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be the glory, the majesty, the dominion, and the power, both now and forevermore. And all of God's people said, amen. God bless you, Strong Tower. Have a blessed day. Those of you who are traveling, be safe. We'll see you next week.